Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about William Shakespeare, the legendary playwright and poet whose works have had a colossal impact on the development of not just the English language, but also the cultures of the places where English is spoken. Shakespeare's plays and and sonnets and and poems have all been so influential on the development of the language we speak that you you probably quote him several times a week, if not every day, without even realising it. Shakespeare lived in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. He worked as an actor as well as a playwright. He wrote some of the most famous pieces of literature that the world has ever seen. I mean, you've heard of the stuff that he's written, of course. Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, Macbeth, King Lear. These are fundamentally, these are instrumentally important works of, of English literature. And you, you've done more than become familiar with them over the years as well. You've almost certainly quoted them without knowing it. I mean, have you ever have you ever worn your heart upon your sleeve? Have you ever described something as a foregone conclusion? I mean, you're quoting Shakespeare with both those things. They're, they're just from Othello. And Shakespeare, across all of his other works, invented so many words and phrases and look, I mean, even even in his lifetime, he was a, a very successful and quite a wealthy playwright. But in the 400 years since his death, his plays have never diminished in popularity. They've only become more popular and are still, of course, today, wildly famous. So, look, I don't know, man. Like, honestly, I really just can't overstate how influential this bloke is when it comes to English language and, and culture. And, I mean, there's a reason he's considered one of the most important figures in history, especially with the position that English has as a global language, as something of an international lingua franca, basically. It's, it's, it's hard to disagree with William Shakespeare being a, a towering figure in human history. But, um, well, look, when it comes to Shakespeare, it's easy to disagree with uh, more or less everything else because the only thing that Shakespearean scholars can agree upon, it seems, is that this bloke was pretty bloody important and everything else about him is up for debate. Shakespeare wrote a lot, but not much of what he wrote was about himself. And so much of his life story has been put together with educated guesswork and conjecture and stuff that was written about him by other people. And as we'll discuss, 
Shakespearean scholars, they love to argue about more or less everything when it comes to this bloke. And that's not even, not even including the people who think that he didn't actually write any of the works attributed to him. But look, today I'll be sticking to the facts or at least the stuff that most people broadly agree on, the closest approximation of, of, of the facts as I can find. Um, but even so, look, I'm looking forward to an inbox filled with the complaints of Shakespeare nerds because I tell you what, they they just love to get bloody arced up about this bloke. Anyway, let's get to his story or as much, uh, you know, we'll get, we'll get across as much of it as we can, talk about how and why he ended up becoming so immensely influential on this silly language that we all speak. So here we go. We're going all the way back. We're going all the way back here to 1564, to late April of that year, which is when William Shakespeare was born. We're not 100% sure on the date. We can argue about that if you want. He was baptised on the 26th of April, uh, so it wouldn't be too long before that. Uh, traditionally, his birthday is celebrated on the 23rd. Uh, anyway, he was born uh, to Mary and John Shakespeare in an English town called Stratford-upon-Avon. And the house in which he was generally considered to have been born, of course, people are still going to argue about that, uh, it's still there today. You can you can go and see it even today. Now, John and Mary had eight kids altogether, but only five of them survived uh, childhood, and Shakespeare was the oldest of these five. Um, now, his dad, John, worked as a glover, as a leather worker, and, and was moderately successful in this uh, in this industry. You know, he, he, was, uh, he, he brought a, bit, a fair bit of money in with his trade, but he also brought a fair bit of money in with a sneaky side hustle that wasn't exactly legal. Now, of course, if you're starting to think, well, geez, the, 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 the story's really getting spicy already if his dad was a hardened criminal. I mean, let me tell you, John Shakespeare was involved in the illegal uh, buying and selling of wool. So, I mean, oh, imagine that. We're all, re- I mean, we're knee deep into crime here, the illegal wool trade, can you imagine? Anyway, as a result of his dad's work, uh, both legal and illegal, uh, and the wealth that his dad brought in, William grew up in in quite a, quite a well-to-do middle-class family. Well, to begin with, at least, because when he was twelve, Shakespeare's old man got in a bit of trouble and lost much of his wealth, even facing court for his illegal wool trading. But uh, all the same, Shakespeare was well-educated at a local grammar school, uh, and it was there that he was taught probably six days a week, uh, from dawn to dusk, learning Latin, uh, studying literature, and as you might imagine performing plays. This was uh, a part of the, the standard uh, education of, of a grammar school at the time, and so Shakespeare's very early exposure to the, the life of the theatre was probably pretty, uh, pretty influential uh, on the bloke as he was, uh, as he was a young fellow. Anyway, um, even with his schooling, even with uh, you know, being at the, at the grammar school six days a week, Shakespeare still had time to cut about the countryside. He enjoyed an active lifestyle. He ran about and explored outdoors, a bit of hunting here and there. But overall, we don't know a huge amount about his early years. And, and I mean, look, why would he? He was a pretty unremarkable kid. And even as a young adult, he didn't do all that much to raise people's attention. He was just the son of a reasonably prosperous merchant and, you know, not the sort of person who really history would take any notice of. Um, although in, there are some records that we do have about some of the activities that he, uh, that he got up to. For example, in, uh, in 1582, at the age of just 18, he was granted a special marriage license to marry a woman whose name was Anne Hathaway. Now, she was 26, and you, know, you probably already know that, that an age difference in this direction was certainly very unusual uh, and would have raised a few eyebrows, as would have the special license, which removed the need for the three-week waiting, waiting period before the wedding. But why did they want to skip this waiting period, I hear you ask? Well, let me tell you, uh, just six months after their marriage, joy of joys, Anne gave birth to a child. So, yeah, when you when you think about why they might want to have gotten married as quickly as possible, I'll let you do the calculations on the time frame there. Anyway... 
That was in 1583. Uh, and while I can tell you that in 1585, William and Anne had uh, two more kids, twins, before Shakespeare was even 21 years old, I can't actually tell you that much more about, I mean, anything really that happened with Shakespeare before 1592. This period between 1585 and 1592 is often referred to as Shakespeare's lost years. And we really don't know what he got up to. People guess, of course. I mean, I mean, it's, it's far from certain, but people claim that he may have worked as a teacher, may become a poacher, followed his dad into a life of crime. We, we really don't know. But what we do know, however, is that it, when we skip forward to 1592, Shakespeare was now, by this stage, a reasonably, a reasonably well-entrenched actor and playwright in London. He's moved from Stratford to London. And so at least... Some part of the lost years, then, we can safely assume, were presumably spent pursuing a career in the theatre. Anyway, it was in 1592 when he popped back up onto the historical record uh, while being absolutely dumpstered by a well-known author from the time, Robert Greene, who wrote something that described him as... An upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide supposes he is well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you. Basically describing Shakespeare as a, uh, as a, as a sort of puffed-up pretender, someone who thought he could run with the big dogs of the time. And I tell you what, I don't know if there is a bloke from history who has been more wrong about something than Robert Greene. Tearing strips off Shakespeare was, you know, for his prowess as a playwright was not something that aged particularly well. So sorry, Robbo old son, you look, it looks like you did get that one wrong. Anyway, from this, right, from what Green wrote about Shakespeare, we know that Shakespeare was already an active part of London theatre. He had gained enough popularity and success to be criticised. But again, outside of this, we're short on proper details. There's a lot of guesswork when putting together the full picture of what Shakespeare did and when. Even something as simple as establishing the order in which his plays were written and published and performed is actually a near impossible task for us to do today with any reliable accuracy. Check this out. This is why, right? Sometimes the plays that he wrote were performed before they were published. Years before, in some cases. Sometimes these plays weren't finished or you know, published as works of media as they as, as things might be today. For many of his plays, Shakespeare chopped and changed things as time went on. He edited, edited them, updated them, refined them, which only leads to more confusion, confusion about not just the timeline, but also which one is the real one. Uh, is the original the most authentic before it was changed and edited, or is the final version more definitive given the benefit of the full length of Shakespeare's career? On top of that, are these versions that have, of his plays that have survived, are they actually, were they actually written by Shakespeare or were they, this is not a joke, bootlegs, which we will come to in just a minute. Look, the only thing, as I've said, that Shakespearean scholars seem to love more than Shakespeare himself is arguing about Shakespeare and they will argue about anything and everything when it comes to this bloke. Let me tell you, I've done my best to synthesise a somewhat broadly accepted chronology and timeline of the works that he wrote um, but look, I'm sure there will be people out there who disagree with even the most basic stuff that I'm saying, not just about his plays, but about the about you know Shakespeare himself. It, 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 there's, there's an entire subset of scholars who don't even believe that Shakespeare wrote all the plays attributed to him. So there, there is nothing you can't argue about here with, with him. Anyway, one thing that is generally accepted is that by 1592, Shakespeare, he's been writing plays, he's, he's been performing them in London making a bit of a name for himself and becoming a part of the fabric of the English Renaissance. Now, the, the, the Renaissance in England 
uh, w- was delayed a little bit. It, it took a while for it to travel from its sort of epicenter in, uh, in, in Italy and, and spread out as far as England. But once it arrived, uh, it established itself in England and English culture, mainly in the form of music and, and, and particularly literature. Even before Shakespeare came along, there were playwrights like Christopher Marlowe, Thomas Kidd. They were changing the game. Plays were becoming more complex. They were becoming grander in scope. They were dealing with larger philosophical and moral issues. And Shakespeare, he was a man with his finger on the pulse. He began to write plays that very much reflected what was popular at the time. He embraced the fast-paced changes of the public mood when it came to theatre. And in the early 1590s, perhaps as early as actually 1589... Shakespeare wrote plays such as The Two Gentlemen of Verona, uh, The Taming of the Shrew, and uh, this might sound a bit weird, Henry VI, Part Two. Now, he started with Henry VI, Part Two, then wrote Part Three, and then went back to Part One, which came along after those, you know, after Part Two and Three. Now, of course, look at this and go, this must be a mistake, doesn't make any sense at all what's going on there. Until we remind ourselves of one of the greatest pieces of performance media of our time, and remember that Star Wars is now considered to have begun with Episode Four. So even William Shakespeare was writing prequels. Anyway, I wish I could do what we did with Mozart and Beethoven, Episodes 177, 178, and Episode 194. Get across them. I wish we could give you a a clearly defined timeline of Shakespeare's works, but it's just not really possible. There is nothing close to a proper properly accurate chronology of his 36 plays. Uh, And look, I've made a mistake there by saying there are 36 of them because that's going to get a lot of Shakespeare nerds saying, well, um, actually. But what I can say with with Shakespeare is this. His development and progress as a playwright, it took a certain path. To begin with, in the early stages of his career, Shakespeare wrote a lot of histories. These histories were relatively well-received. They were popular enough to get his name out there. Plays that had to do with historical figures, dramatising historical events. And, uh, and again, a well-established, a well-established genre of theatre at the time. And Shakespeare was very, very good at writing these. But in time, look, in time he would write more histories, of course, uh, legendarily famous histories. But in time he, he expanded his, his work to include comedies, uh, tragedies, uh, tragicomedies, so-called problem plays later on in his career as well. So he had a very broad scope of, uh, uh, of genre when it came to the plays that he wrote. Um, and, and there was one thing really that influenced Shakespeare very profoundly when it came to what kind of plays he was writing at any, at any given point during his career, and that was the public demand. This was a bloke, as I say, with, with his finger on the pulse, and he knew it was going to do well in theatres, and he wrote to appease that public demand, what the public was in the mood for. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but there were very, some very good reasons that the public were, you know, at different points uh, in, in Shakespeare's lifetime looking for certain types of plays. We'll talk about that in a, in, in a little bit. But look, even before um, Shakespeare, there were people like, as I say, Christopher Marlowe, Thomas Kidd, other playwrights as well, who were, were changing theatre forever. And Shakespeare certainly fits into that mould as a uh, as an enormously influential playwright. Um, and before these blokes came along, English play, a typical English play would generally have been a morality play. It would have been something very simple, not hugely realistic, would have had a basic moral lesson that was usually steeped with religious influence. But Shakespeare and Marlowe and Kidd and all these other, all these other blokes, they innovated. 
they produced works that broke established theatrical conventions, pioneered into new space, combining classical Greek and Roman influences with Elizabethan morality plays, and this is where Shakespeare found his success as a playwright. But let me tell you, in his day, he was he was famous for much more than that. We think of him today as, as a poet and a playwright, but when he was around, he was also an actor. He used his own money to invest in the acting companies that he was a part of, and he had a lot of success actually treading the boards. In 1594, he was part of an acting company called The Lord Chamberlain's Men. And he wasn't just a part of it, he was a part owner of it as well. The Lord Chamberlain's Men were one of the most popular and successful acting troops in London. And Shakespeare's work, both as, an, as, as a player and as an actor, were a big part of that. And, and Shakespeare's success as both a playwright and an actor, I mean, it, it treated him very well when it came to the old hip pocket. It meant that he, he was able to live quite comfortably And by 1598, he is well-renowned enough to have his name becoming a selling point for plays both as an actor and as a writer. We know this because in some of the advertising material that was put out for uh, for the productions that were put on by Shakespeare and his company featured his name very prominently as a as a as a as a draw card to get you know bums on seats or people into the theatre to see what uh, what he'd come up with next. By this part, by this stage in, in his career, by 1598, some of his most famous plays have, have already been performed or published, such as Romeo and Juliet, the first official publication of uh, Romeo and Juliet dates back to 1597. But this period also produced some of Shakespeare's most famous comedies, including A Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Ado About Nothing, The Merchant of Venice. These are plays you've probably heard of before, even if you're not intimately familiar with them. Um, and, and Shakespeare's early career, as I said, you know, we saw this sort of genre shift. He, he moved from histories more towards comedies. And I mentioned there's a reason for shifts like this. It was to do with what the public wanted. And uh, between 1592 and 1594, there were outbreaks of bubonic plague in London. And as you are, you know, listening to this, currently someone who is living through a global pandemic you won't be surprised to learn that the public were in the mood for some uh, lighter entertainment, so Shakespeare focused on comedies. And broadly speaking, his work went over very well just because uh, it was what it was what people wanted, something light and frothy and entertaining to take their mind off the fact that the bubonic plague was ravaging their city. Outside of his work as an actor and a playwright, Shakespeare, as the part owner of his acting troupe, also had to oversee some of the group's business affairs as well. And he seems to have done pretty, seems to have pretty well uh, with, uh, with this. He was pretty good with money, both in business and personally speaking. Uh, despite living in London, Shakespeare bought a huge house in his hometown of Stratford-upon-Avon. He made regular trips back to visit his family. And also, quite significantly was able to secure a coat of arms for his old man, who had long sought after this bump in his social status. And Shakespeare seemed to have, uh, he seemed to have shared the same desire for, uh, for a bit of grandeur and glory, like, just like his old man. And so in 1596, he was successful in obtaining a coat of arms for the Shakespeare family. Now, some Shakespeare scholars have pointed out that his plays often deal with themes of social status and standing, and Shakespeare wasn't always kind in his plays to people who sort of had ideas above their station, and there's, there's an idea that he may have actually been making fun of himself with plays like this because he did have this, uh, this quite strong desire to, you know, climb the social ladder, and, and we see that, as I say, again in 1596 when he got this coat of arms for himself. Anyway, 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As we move now into the 17th century, Shakespeare's work expanded in a new direction. His focus shifted away from comedies, shifted away from histories, although he still wrote, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, he still wrote... Uh, plays that fall within those genres. But as we move towards and into the 17th century, uh, his focus was definitely more on tragedies. And the period between the period between 1599 and 1606 saw the creation of some of his most famous plays, Julius Caesar, King Lear, Macbeth, and his longest play of all, Hamlet. Hamlet is perhaps Shakespeare's most influential and enduring work it's, has, it's been performed and adapted and retold and remixed countless times since it was written around the year 1600 or so. But here's what's really intriguing about Hamlet and about so many other Shakespeare plays. It wasn't a hugely original piece of work. Now, I'm not going to completely jump the shark and start talking about how Shakespeare didn't write any of the plays that have been attributed. There's plenty of resources available. I've, I've been through a lot of them and they're... Quite terrifying, to be honest, but if you want to get into that, certainly you'll be able to. But the fact of the matter is, really, this is not hugely up for debate. Every playwright, more or less, of this period, I mean, as well as writers today, recycled old stories, adapted old tales, incorporated myths and legends and folklore and lent on well-established tropes in all of their works. This is a common criticism of media these days, films and TV shows and books and what have you. You know, it's all just the the rehashing of old ideas to to, to quote the famous group of philosophers known as the bare naked ladies. It's all been done before. But this was a common practice back then, just as it is now. There, There were very practical reasons for someone like Shakespeare to rehash and recycle older stories that had been, you know, retold over the centuries, stories and tales that people were quite familiar with. Firstly, this bloke, he's churning out multiple plays a year. He's writing them at such a pace that adapting old works is a very efficient way to put out enough enough content to sate people's appetites. And additionally, on top of this, you want to guarantee that people are actually going to come and see the plays that you write. So if they're comfortable and if they're familiar and if they have characters and story arcs that people will know and relate to, then the crowds will come. A lot of modern writers, a lot of modern media production houses, they cop a lot of flack for never having an original idea, remaking, rehashing, rebooting old content. But this is not new. I mean, even Shakespeare 
cops criticism from some quarters because his works aren't completely overflowing with originality. But this, it, it wasn't just very normal for the time. It's pretty normal now. And it is just, I think, a, 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 a fundamental and instrumental part of human storytelling. Anyway, to bring it back to Hamlet, there's a reasonable amount of evidence to suggest that, that the Hamlet that we know today was based on another older story or, or play that has since been lost. And this story or play is, is referred to as Ur-Hamlet. Um, and Shakespeare may have based Hamlet on it, but then again, other scholars suggest that Shakespeare also wrote Ur-Hamlet, wrote so it was something of a first draft in that case. Look, honestly, who knows and who cares? Shakespeare wrote some cracking plays. Nothing under the sun is new. It's as simple as that. Anyway, quite aside from the success that Shakespeare had with his plays, the Lord Chamberlain's men, of which he was remember a member and part owner, they're still going strong. In 1599, they purpose-built their own theatre with the wealth that they had created with the, with the performances they'd put on. And it's a theatre you've probably heard of, the Globe Theatre, very famous in London. The Globe Theatre was an open-air three-storey building with a thrust stage, one that thrusts out into the midst of the audience. And it was there that some of Shakespeare's most famous and well-known plays were first performed. I mentioned Julius Caesar, Macbeth. These both premiered at the Globe Theatre. Now, the Globe Theatre didn't stick around for very long. It burnt down some years later and then was closed down under Puritan rule in around 1643. But it has since been rebuilt for the modern era and today still hosts, of course, very famously, Shakespeare plays that you can go and see in the middle of London. And this was true at the turn of the 17th century as well. It was there that you could see the Lord Chamberlain's men, or from, I mean, in 1603, after King James I took a very strong interest in the company, uh, and began to patronise it uh, himself, uh, as they became known, the, the King's Men. Uh, it was there you could go and see the King's Men putting on the later Shakespeare uh, performances and, and generally bring the house down as they did so. They didn't just perform at the Globe Theatre, though. They performed it at other venues and gave, and, and gave private performances for King James um, and benefited from being the only acting troupe with the exclusive right to perform Shakespeare's plays. I mean, you might look at that and go, well, yes, of course, obviously, Shakespeare was part of this group. It's not like he's going to let other people go around and perform his plays. But they still did. And here is here's an issue from the time that Shakespeare's career casts a very, very interesting light on. Check this out, right? Copyright law didn't really exist in any meaningful form back then. And it certainly wasn't enforced in the way that it is today. So the way Shakespeare enforced the King's Men's exclusive right to his plays was by not publishing them publicly. Remember how I said before that it's difficult to get a proper timeline of Shakespeare's plays because, you know, they're all written and performed and published in years that are all over the place and don't make a lot of sense? A lot of this is due to the fact that Shakespeare didn't publish many of his plays, not officially, and that they weren't readily available to the public until after he died. But here's where it gets really good. Hold on to your butts for this one, my friends, because you're not going to believe this. You know how cinemas today, right, they'll have a, they'll have, you know, an, an exclusivity period for films. So you can't go and stream them online or buy the DVD or whatever, although I don't, I don't really know who, I don't know anyone who buys DVDs these days to be in or whatever. In order to get around this, this cinema exclusive period, there are those of a uh, rather more hmm, 
morally flexible disposition that will sometimes sneak into a, a cinema with a video camera. They'll point this video camera at the screen while the film plays, and then they'll upload this this bootleg version of the film. Uh, they'll upload it online, and you know people can can go and watch it if they so choose. And and you know whether you do or don't agree with the ethics of doing something like this, it is certainly a you know, clever and sneaky method enabled by modern technology, but not the sort of thing you could have done in Shakespeare's time. You know, it's not as if you could have gone to the Globe Theatre, to, the to the latest Shakespeare premiere, and sat there in the audience writing down everything that the, that the actors say in order to try to reverse engineer the script of the play from the dialogue as it's being delivered on stage. Except that's just what people did. That I'm, I'm not joking. People would go to Shakespeare's plays with pen and paper and attempt to write down the dialogue as it was being performed. Today, as I mentioned, arguments rage on about which versions of plays like Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet are the authentic versions. And there are a couple of different versions of each of these plays, all with pretty significant differences. I mean, to be or not to be, I. There's the point. To die, to sleep, is that all? I. Or no, to sleep, to dream, I. Marry, there it goes. Does that sound familiar? Probably not, because that is the so-called first quarto edition of Hamlet, which is widely considered to be, I am deadly serious when I say this, a bootleg version of Hamlet. These bad quartos, as they're known, were either made by people furiously scribbling shorthand at performances or getting an actor who learnt the lines and performed the play officially to sneakily write them down for you. Now, of course, there are plenty of theatrical scholars who argue with this idea and say that bad quartos are, are a complete and total invention, but the fact remains that a lot of the inclusion over which, which version of Shakespeare's plays are authentic may centre on the fact that there were people bootlegging them over 400 years ago. Anyway, in the first decade of the 17th century, the king's men were firing on all cylinders, having a great time, putting on Shakespeare's plays, bringing in the cash. But then, in 1608, another bout of plague caused London theatres to shut down, meaning they had to leave London and go on tour. But this worked out all right. They made a good amount of money as they cut about, uh, cut about England. Uh, and once London reopened, they also managed to acquire another theatre, the Blackfriars Theatre, which, unlike the Globe Theatre, actually had a roof, so they could put plays on when it rained. A very important thing to be able to do when you live in England. In 1609, another very famous body of Shakespeare's works was published, of course, his sonnets, 154 poems, or sonnets as they're usually referred to as, and these sonnets are, of course, very famous indeed. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day and all that? It seems like Shakespeare wrote most of them initially as a private endeavour. It didn't look like he actually intended to release them, but, I mean, look, he didn't publish much non-theatrical work, but it's thought that throughout his career, particularly during times of plague, when an acting work was, was scarcer, he wrote these sonnets and finally decided to publish publish them all. But the plays that he wrote around this time, as famous as his sonnets became, his plays, well, they, as we head into the 1610s, these plays aren't as famous as some of his earlier works. They're, I mean, you might have heard of The Tempest, probably written around 1610, but I mean, I'd never heard of Cymbeline or Coriolanus or The Winter's Tale. His latest stuff really doesn't seem to have resonated through history quite as strongly. But even so, even if, it, even if these plays didn't have the staying power that some of his others did, they didn't slow Shakespeare down at the time. The King's Men kept going from strength to strength. To strength. Shakespeare himself remained relatively well off throughout his entire life. 
Uh, and in later years, he bought an apartment in London near the Blackfriars Theatre, and he continued to divide his time between London and Stratford. He was approaching 50 by this stage, and many Shakespearean scholars say that he retired altogether in 1613 at the age of 49. Now, of course, this is disputed, as is more or less everything about his life. I mean, there are those who argue that retirement wasn't even really a thing in Shakespeare's day, and, you know, he just kept working. But certainly there are no plays written after 1613 that are very readily attributed to him. So even if he didn't give up theatre at all, maybe if he, he continued acting, he certainly seems to have stopped writing plays. The last play that he wrote was probably The Two Noble Kinsmen. I mean, no, I'd never heard of it either. But I'm sorry to say that Shakespeare's retirement wasn't very lengthy because Shakespeare died in 1616 on the same date generally considered to be his birthday on the 23rd of April. He was just 52 years old and he died within a month of writing a will in which he described himself as being in perfect health. And of course, we don't know for sure how he died, although sources both contemporary and modern indicate that his death came as a surprise to everyone. So whether there was something suspicious going on or not, we will probably never know, but certainly Shakespeare was taken from us much earlier than people anticipated he would be. But of course, it was far from the end of William Shakespeare. In many ways, it was just the beginning of the legacy that this man would end up having on this ridiculous language that has grown to become a global lingua franca. After his death, some of Shakespeare's colleagues worked to collect and collate and organise and ultimately publish a definitive collection of his works in 1623, seven years after he died. And this work has become known as the First Folio. And it's this first folio that is considered by many to contain the authoritative versions of his plays. Although, and I mean, you know what I'm going to say next, people still argue about it. It's not just bad quartos and bootlegs, Shakespeare. He did publish some of his plays in his lifetime, and even these good quartos differ significantly from the ones, from the versions in the first folio, because he revised and rewrote passages he changed sections for various reasons there were printing errors and spelling errors and editing well actually i say i say spelling errors hilariously because spelling was so unbelievably unstandardized back then you couldn't help but have things turn out differently because in shakespeare's time spelling was something of a bonus an optional extra that you could throw in to your writing if you so chose it wasn't ordered and regulated as it is now and i mean look if you can't keep the spelling consistent between works how are you going to keep versions of the plays that span decades consistent but the first folio nonetheless is widely and i would say correctly considered one of the most important works of literature in history given the influence that Shakespeare's plays have had on the English language. And, you know, this may sound like more Eurocentric, uh, you know, Anglophonic nonsense here, but you can't deny English has become the leading international language, for better or for worse, and you can't possibly ignore the bloke who was instrumental in shaping it into what it is today. Shakespeare's plays remained immensely popular after his death, even when England was ruled by Puritans who banned theatrical entertainment, who closed the Globe Theatre, they've never really waned in popularity ever since he wrote them. They've only become more famous, more influential, more culturally important and significant 
since they were first published. Honestly, I mean, I don't even know where to start when talking about how supremely important Shakespeare's legacy is when it comes to the English language. And, and, and further than that, the culture of parts of the world that trace their cultural origins back to England. I mean, even further than that, really, Shakespeare's works have been translated into more or less every single major world language. His plays and their characters examine the, the human condition, which has a huge amount of universality to it. From, from every angle, Shakespeare examined things like, like heroism and failure and life and death and love, hatred, pride, humility, revenge, forgiveness. Shakespeare he explored all of these things and so many more, and that transcends language. His characters are complex, they're flawed, they're open, open to interpretation. Their famous soliloquies opened up their natures to the audience, who are in many cases left to decide for themselves on these intricate characters. So there's his cultural impact. I mean, you see Shakespeare's influence everywhere. Famous paintings of scenes from his plays, pieces of music based on the stories that he wrote, and of course... His influence on, on the works of, of other writers. Charles Dickens's books are filled with Shakespearean quotes and allusions. A ton of the titles of his novels are references to Shakespeare's works. Aldous Huxley, too. Brave New World is taken directly from The Tempest. Uh, Huxley just adapted this for the title of his book. And it's not just English writers either. Captain Ahab from Herman Melville's Moby Dick is a classic Shakespearean tragic figure. But quite aside from his cultural legacy, I think the greatest legacy of Shakespeare is the way in which he changed English as a language forever and turned it into the language that it is today. He and other playwrights at the time expanded the English vocabulary by borrowing and adapting words from other languages or just making up new words altogether. English is an extremely fluid and elastic language. You can you can verb a noun, for instance, and even if it doesn't make sense formally, you'll still be able to brain it out. And these days we can add prefixes and suffixes to words to change their meaning and we think nothing of it. We can say things like de-stress or good-ish and we don't have any problem understanding the meaning behind terms like these, even if we've never heard them before. But Shakespeare built a legacy on that. He built a legacy that changed the language forever. You know when you hear like a cool new word or a phrase or a bit of slang and you immediately know what it means even though you've never come across it before? You know, like, oh, that's a vibe, something like that. That's all Shakespeare did, except instead of his slang dying out with the next generation of bussin' teens, we're still using the words and phrases that he invented 400 years ago. We're still using them today. Samuel Johnson was the author of the absolutely seminal A Dictionary of the English Language, more or less the dictionary that standardised modern English. And would you like to have a guess who Johnson quoted more than any other person in defining and giving meaning to the words in his dictionary? It is, of course, William Shakespeare. If you still don't really have an appreciation for the influence that Shakespeare has had on English, let me let's let's we'll do a little activity here, right? Let me hit you with a couple of normal everyday phrases that you probably you probably never thought twice about, right? And you can try to guess which of these phrases that Shakespeare invented, right? Here we go. <clears throat> Too much of a good thing. Haven't slept a wink. The be all and end all. Break the ice. Melted into thin air, the world is your oyster, in my heart of hearts, it's all Greek to me. 
So they're, they're just a bunch of, of, of English phrases that we use, as I say, every day. We don't think about these too much. It's very clear to us today what, the, what all of these phrases mean. How many of them do you think Shakespeare invented? Did you guess every single one of them? Because Shakespeare invented not just those phrases, but countless others. Good riddance, laughing stock, salad days, eyesore, tongue-tied, in a pickle, fool's paradise, early days, high time, game is up, lie low, fast and loose, foul play, the list goes on. And when you think about these phrases, right, they make perfect sense to us. But the beauty of them is that even if you hadn't heard a phrase like, wear your heart upon your sleeve, you could probably figure out what it meant and appreciate it as a very clever and very evocative piece of poetry. And English just didn't have these phrases before Shakespeare was around. I'm not a literary critic, let alone a Shakespearean one. I'd be far too scared to argue with people. But Shakespeare's gift with words, his ability to conjure up these phrases, mix them together to create new meanings, imbue his characters and his stories with such rich depth as a result. If English was a colouring book, it was Shakespeare who got out his crayons. And I mean, look, I don't understand half of the stuff that's going on in Shakespeare's work. It really is all Greek to me. But even if you don't understand or even appreciate his work, you cannot deny its influence on the language that we speak. There's so much to talk about when it comes to this bloke. And again, I, I feel like I've barely scratched the surface, but I, w- I want to leave you with this, with one final thought here. Shakespeare in his works are usually seen as being scholarly and highbrow and elitist and something that only richly intelligent people can truly enjoy. And while the language that he uses admittedly isn't hugely accessible to us these days, let me tell you this. Shakespeare is anything but highbrow. His plays are full of terrible puns, racy innuendo, dirty jokes, just like our mate Mozart. This guy wasn't the intellectual cultivated artiste that he's made out to be today. I mean, in Much Ado About Nothing, when Benedict tells Beatrice, I will live in thy heart, die in thy lap, and be buried in thy eyes. I mean, this sounds beautiful. What a, what, a, what a beautiful and amazingly romantic piece of poetry, right? Except die was Elizabethan slang for an orgasm in the same way that today we might say come. So come in thy lap. Shakespeare was a dirty boy, as shown in his, is his poem Venus and Adonis. <clears throat> Graze on my lips. And if those hills be dry, stray lower, where the pleasant fountains lie. And then there are the jokes that he snuck in where he could, you know, tried to just get these cheeky gags in. Like in Twelfth Night, when the butler Malvolio thinks that he recognises his mistress's handwriting and says, By my life, this is my lady's hand. These be her very C's, her U's, and her T's. And thus makes she her great P's. I mean, so cheap, spelling out C-U-N-T, but I mean, so funny, especially when you think of how Shakespeare is seen these days. Titus Andronicus even has a your mum joke when Chiron says to Aaron, thou hast undone our mother. And Aaron, who is in fact sleeping with Chiron's mum, says, villain, I have done thy mother. 
The best one, however, comes from one of the most famous scenes in one of Shakespeare's most famous plays, Romeo and Juliet. During the death scene, uh, sorry, spoilers, I guess, only came out four centuries ago, when Juliet says, O happy dagger, this is thy sheath, there rust and let me die. Now, remember, die is a euphemism for an orgasm, while, I mean, daggers and sheaths? In reality, Romeo and Juliet was basically a sex comedy, not just the tragic star-crossed lovers stuff. So don't fall for the stuffy academics who try to claim Shakespeare's literature as studious and highbrow. Shakespeare loved a dick joke. I mean, we all do, mate. And teachers around the world do his legacy a disservice, in my view, with the exhaustingly dry analysis of iambic pentameter and nonsense like that. There's a reason we haven't talked about it in this episode. It's boring. Let's talk about the dick jokes, mate. There's so much more to Shakespeare. And if you've got a mind to, I recommend reading more both about him and and by him. His plays are... I mean, I've said this, they're pretty inaccessible, it's true. So if you want an easier time getting into them, perhaps you could uh, find annotated copies of the plays that explain some of the more arcane uh, bits and pieces in them, or do what I did and read a box set of Shakespeare's plays that was rewritten for children in the style of kids' novels. And that, I mean, I'm not joking when I say that really actually did help me understand and appreciate Shakespeare so much more. So give Shakespeare a go. You'll not only gain a better understanding of of English and a better appreciation of how vast his cultural influence was, but you'll also recognise the truth of Ben Jonson's epithet for Shakespeare in his first folio, that he was not of an age, but for all time. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of... Well, it's as much of the story as I felt safe talking about without having my inbox set on fire by Shakespeare nerds. So I do hope you enjoyed it. And uh, it was good to talk about the, in, in some small way, the monumental legacy that Shakespeare has left behind when it comes to language and, and literature and culture. So I hope you had a good time learning a bit more about a legendarily famous figure. And there'll be more where that came from, of course, back next week with another towering historical figure. So I do hope you'll join me then. In the meantime, leaving you, of course, with all the boring housekeeping stuff. Sorry about this. Halfhousehistory.net, the contact form there for those of you getting in touch. I appreciate this, the topic suggestions that are coming in. But as I've mentioned uh, last week, we will be sticking with sort of broader, larger topics in the coming week. So do suggest any huge figures that you want to hear about and uh, and maybe I'll get across them uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, and if you want to support the show, thank you to all the people signing up on Patreon. Had a couple of new signups this week. If you want to join their exalted ranks, patreon.com slash history. And there's some merch as well you can get your hands on, a merch refresh coming in the, in the next couple of weeks. So suggestions also appreciated for anything you might want to wear on a T-shirt, cutting about spreading the good word of half Ass history. Speaking of which, tell your friends, tell your enemies, Tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Got to get those numbers up, of course. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. See you back in next week for more Half House History. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit by DS Owen 16 who asks, 
Why haven't we harnessed the power of monkeys with typewriters to discover all of Shakespeare's lost plays? deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.